0: Morning, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture will be Ecclesiastes chapter one verses one through eleven, and I'll be using the English Standard Version. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the word of God.
1: Well, if you can't tell, we are starting a new sermon series this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and again, you can find that book in your Bibles in the Old Testament. If you open up and you hit the middle in Psalms or so, take a right. If you get to Isaiah, you've gone too far. Come back. Uh, you'll find it right between Proverbs and Song of Songs. And if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, you can find that on page 658. And the text uh, is going to be up on the screen behind us as we go through it as well. So, welcome to Ecclesiastes. Uh, The title of this book comes from the very first verse. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And the word that's translated preacher there is a Hebrew word, Kohelet, And you put that into Greek, you get the word Ecclesiastes. That's where the title comes from. It's the Greek translation of this word we call preacher. So it refers to a person who either gathers an assembly to address it. So a preacher or a teacher, or it might refer to somebody who gathers words for instruction, collecting sayings and such for a book. Uh, and if you pick up a, a commentary or a book that helps you understand Ecclesiastes, oftentimes they'll call it by that Hebrew title, Kohelet. So that's why I want you to know that name. So this book is uh, is the collected sayings and wisdom of the preacher, Ecclesiastes. Now, we're not given his name in this book, uh, though he has traditionally been understood to be David's son, Solomon. Who wrote the Song of Songs, who wrote Proverbs, and there are obvious reasons for this. Verse 1. He's called the Son of David, King in Jerusalem. Okay? And of course, you look at how he, how this preacher describes life, and you compare that with what we see of Solomon's life in 1 Kings. There's a lot of similarities. All of the wealth, all of the wisdom, all of the women, and so on. Uh, this very much looks and sounds and feels like Solomon. Though you will find that there are some who think maybe somebody else wrote it, since it doesn't specify his name like Proverbs or Song of Songs does, and, and a couple other reasons. Uh, so those would they would suggest that it's someone who wanted to present uh, that that famous king's tale, his tragic downfall, as a cautionary tale. So somebody essentially using Solomon's life as a foil to show how fleeting and fruitless uh, life is. At the end of the day, the message of the book doesn't depend on or isn't changed based on whether or not Solomon actually wrote it. Uh, I'm happy to consider him as the author, but this is God's word and it is for all generations and it is particularly relevant for us today living in New England. Now, I've given this series, uh, the sermon series, what is possibly the longest series title in preaching history, at least since the Puritans and their page-long titles. Uh, It takes up two whole banners. We couldn't fit it on one. And that's not even the whole thing. Work, wealth, pleasure, knowledge, and other dreams that disappoint. The surprising hope of Ecclesiastes. But that long title... Is designed to capture attention that we feel in this book, attention that is, makes it so obviously relevant for us today in New England, and more specifically, Greater Boston. If you uh, do a random survey on the street, in your school, at your office, in your child's playgroup, and you ask a simple question, "What do you live for?" What do you look to for lasting gain and significance? Among other things, you're going to get these answers. Work. I live for my job, for my career, working my way up the the ladder, landing that big dollar client. That's what I live for. Or else wealth. We trust in our money to answer our problems. If I can just get a little bit more, then my problems will go away. I mean, this church is located in the wealthiest town in Massachusetts. It's very easy to live for our wealth. Or pleasure. We live for weekends at the Cape. For Red Sox games. Patriots, Celtics, Bruins. And I'm told it in that order. Red Sox, Patriots. <laughs> you know. we, we look for significance in our social life. Whether it's racking up the friends on Facebook or actually interacting with people. Uh, maybe our nightlife, the clubbing, the sex, the alcohol, we want pleasure. And then there's knowledge. And Boston boasts some of the finest institutes in higher education in the world. Harvard, MIT, Tufts, Wellesley, and we've got some of the finest secondary private schools like Phillips Academy. You know, some of you in this room have more degrees than Fahrenheit. Okay? So we're smart. We live for knowledge. As a culture, we work hard. We're smart. We're wealthy. And there's lots to do. That's living. You live in New England. You've arrived. And of course, there's other dreams that we can add to the list. Family. Power. Fame. Relationships. Religion. And so on. The problem is that they all disappoint. In some way or another, at some time or another, these dreams will let us down. They are, as Ecclesiastes tells us, vapor, smoke. Corporate empires that are built from a lifetime of hard work are handed off to the next generation and crumble in years. The money that we trust in disappears as stock markets fall and as investors falter. You know, activities that bring us pleasure today seem just slightly more dull tomorrow. Just not quite as exhilarating as they once were. We study to unravel life's mysteries only to face the same event as everyone else death. And you don't have to be a Christian to know immediately what Ecclesiastes is talking about as he looks at life in this world. When uh, when pioneer sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville and I apologize Wikipedia didn't have a little button I could click to hear how to pronounce that name correctly. So for you French speakers, please forgive me. But when this when when pioneer sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville described his observations of America back in the 1830s, he noted what he called a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. A strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. We have all this stuff, all these achievements, so much to do and see, and yet we're not satisfied. Because in those perhaps rare moments when we're honest enough to let our guard down, we know in our hearts that none of this is secure. The only thing, the only things that stand between us and losing our dreams are time and chance. And eventually everything succumbs to them. This book resonates with a deep longing and an unspoken sadness in our hearts. As we wrestle with life's inconsistencies. As we come to grips with the fleeting and fruitless realities of life under the sun in a fallen world. Life in the hamster wheel. But before you rush off to the pharmacy as you think about coping with 19 weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a relatively depressing message. You need to know that Ecclesiastes does not leave us there. There is a surprising hope in this book. And as we're going to see in our passage this morning and throughout the rest of the book, what it tells us is that our only hope for lasting gain in a fleeting and fruitless world is God himself. Our only hope for lasting gain in a fleeting and fruitless world is God himself. But unless we wrestle honestly with the hard realities of life's disappointments, we'll never be able to see that hope and appreciate it for what it really is. Unless the hollow dreams of this world are exposed for what they are, smoke, we're never going to see life from God's perspective, and therefore gain the wisdom necessary for living with joy and reverence in this world with the days God has given us. You have to descend into the dark, mysterious, even dangerous valley of reality and temporality in order to enjoy the breathtaking, liberating Vision of life with God in Jesus on the other side. And so the preacher invites us on a journey. And with him we shall go for the next several months. So let's pray together as we look at Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. Lord, we recognize before us there are hard words. And God, some of us are not ready for that. Some of us are a little scared and nervous for what this book might turn up in our lives. And yet some of us are living this every day. And we need to hear it. And we need to hear the hope that you speak in the midst of it. And so God, we pray that you'd open our eyes and our hearts this morning that you would give us your perspective from this book. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes is a systematic exploration of all of life, quote, under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, uh, occurs 29 times in this book. All that's done under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. I've seen everything done under the sun and so on. And by under the sun, Solomon refers to this realm that we live in every day. What you and I can see with our eyes, touch with our hands, and make sense of, uh, what we experience day in and day out from the ground level, that's under the sun. So life in a fallen world, that's what he's exploring. Life in a world that doesn't work the way God designed it because human sin and rebellion has messed things up ever since the beginning. So it's a world given to decay and corruption and disappointment. The whole world is Solomon's laboratory. And in this book, he takes a hard, honest look and examines and evaluates work, wealth, pleasure, knowledge, wisdom, time, Eternity, relationships, power, politics, and everything else under the sun. That's what he's exploring. He's so honest about what he sees that some have described him as being unorthodox, of teaching things in this book that don't line up with the rest of Scripture. One ancient rabbi quipped that Solomon wrote Song of Songs in his youth, Proverbs in his maturity, And Ecclesiastes in his senility. So, more provocative perhaps, one modern scholar has said, nowhere else in Holy Scripture is there so forthrightly set out an alternative vision to that of the Gospel. A rival version of truth. Where is Solomon taking us? What's he really saying? Well, there's one key question that is driving his exploration, and we see it in verse 3. And it's going to come up again and again in different forms throughout the book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, is anything of lasting value, any lasting gain to be found under the sun in This life, as we live out our days in a fallen world, running back and forth from job to home to school, back to job. if, If we just stop for a moment and step back and take a closer look at everything we're spending our time and our energy doing. Does any of it truly last or make a difference? That's his question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And if anything, what is it? And if nothing, well then what? His preliminary conclusion is rather unsettling. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Yikes. In fact, that's not just his preliminary conclusion. That's the theme of the book. That word for vanity occurs 38 times in this book. It means vapor or breath. You know, or other versions translate it as meaningless uh, As in the NIV, which in my estimation is a little too specific. It can mean that, but it doesn't always, and so that's part of why I'm preaching this series from the English Standard Version. But that's the, that's the preacher's conclusion. Vapor of vapors, everything is vapor. So it's like trying to grab hold of a puff of smoke, or of your more, of your breath on a cold morning. You can't, you can't get it. So everything in this world that we try to take hold of in order to find lasting gain and significance is ultimately fleeting and fruitless. It doesn't last and it doesn't add up to much. Uh, Derek Kidner describes a wisp of vapor, a puff of wind, a mere breath, nothing you can get your hands on. That's this word, vanity, vapor. There's no substance there's no lasting gain. Life is vapor. Do you know what he's talking about? You think about your day. You think about your month. All the commotion. What do you have to show for it? Do you have that sneaking suspicion? What if he's right? Then what? All we give ourselves to in this fallen world under the sun is fleeting and fruitless. Well, in case you need some convincing, Solomon goes on to offer some evidence in verses 4 through 11. So think about the fleeting nature of humanity on this earth. Verse 4, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever did you ever wonder what Algonquin tribe used to live on the land that your house now rests on? You know, uh, or, or, or how about what family lived in the house you live in before you bought it or, or perhaps before that? You know, it's as if the earth sits there watching this parade of humanity come and go with no awareness of each other. vapor. Think about the endless toil of creation. What does it have to show for all its work? Verse five, the sun rises, the sun goes down and it hastens or it returns panting to the place where it rises. Always running, never getting anywhere. The sun's work is never any closer to being finished at the end of the day. And as we sleep and awake with its setting and rising, neither is ours. Consider the wind, verse 6. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. On its circuit, the wind returns. A whole lot of motion and activity, nothing to show for it. Think about the streams, verse 7. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. How much work does it take for the mighty Mississippi to move all that water, you know, being fed by the Missouri, the Ohio, and in countless tributaries over 32 states? That's how wide the watershed is. How much work does it take to move all that water into the ocean, and then you get there and the sea level remains the same? That's kind of disappointing. You know, the endless cycle of of evaporation, precipitation, a whole lot of work, nothing to show. Think about all the effort that we expend speaking, seeing, and hearing, and yet we're never satisfied. Our ears are never full, our eyes are never done, as he says in verse 8. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And of course, all of this is meant to illustrate how our work, what we do, is never complete and doesn't ultimately add up to much. No lasting gain under the sun. This is life in the hamster wheel. You're running, 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 and you're getting absolutely nowhere. It's what we do every day. Douglas Wilson, uh, a pastor, summarizes, you washed the dishes last night, there they are again. You changed the oil in your car 3 months ago and now you're doing it again. This shirt was clean yesterday. You know, uh, you know, with little kids in our home, my my wonderful wife lives this reality of all of this labor. You know, we we've got the mountain of clean clothes and we'll sit down and watch a show and fold laundry or something. And it feels so good to get it, you know, put away, and then all of a sudden, two days, there it is again. It's just depressing. <laughs> I mean, and and we all feel that in some way in our various work, the work that we do. And don't by the way think that ministry is immune from this either. You know, a pastor or or a missionary can spend years. Preaching the gospel, discipling someone, investing, uh, in someone, only to watch those people make dangerous, deadly decisions. You know, it's not surprising to hear Paul's anxiety, uh, as he rebukes the church in Galatia, in Galatians 4.11. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In vain. There's our word. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell summarizes, this book shows us the futility of our work in this world, even our most fruitful work. Like an apple that ripens only to fall to the ground and decay. So our work eventually comes to nothing. And that's what verses 9 through 11 pound uncomfortably home. First, our word, our work adds nothing new to the world. Verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new. It's already been done in ages before. Now, one might well argue that there's a lot that's new in our world. Things are changing all the time. In 2006, the iPhone did not exist. Today, it accounts for 58% of the income for a $550 billion company. That sounds pretty new. But people still have to show up for work every day to make something called an iPhone. And people still have to manage those people. Some of them still get sick. Some of them still get laid off. And all of them eventually die So, you know, Solomon's not saying that there's no such thing as invention, but that despite human innovation, life is basically the same rat race. And who can disagree with that? And it gets worse, in case you were wondering. Uh, Not only does our work add nothing new, it it won't be remembered either. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after us. We think about what he's saying. We, you and I, won't be remembered. That sounds really kind of bleak and, and, and depressing. But a simple test will suffice. And I actually want you to raise your hand for this one. How many of you can name all eight of your great-grandparents' first name? Think about it for a minute. All eight of your great-grandparents. Any hands? I see one, two, three. Okay. Pretty lame. Just think about that for a minute. Right now, as far as your work and accomplishments are concerned under the sun, you are a mere four generations from oblivion. (laughs) Think about that. Four generations and your memory's gone. O'Donnell puts it quite sharply. Today's celebrities are tomorrow's obituaries, and their names are as disposable as the morning paper in which their life stories will be printed. That's us. So, if all of this is true, that whatever we might look to for lasting gain in this fallen world, in what we can see and experience in life under the sun, if Everything is vapor. Then how do we respond? How do we respond? Uh, Again, Doug O'Donnell suggests that there are three common responses among humanity. And I think he's right. We can try and escape. We can just give up. Or we can party. You know, if none of this lasts and therefore matters or amounts to anything we can try and escape the harsh reality of that just simply by medicating the pain or you know through uh, through drugs or alcohol or or porn or anything that makes us feel like we're in control at least for a little bit we try and escape that way we can try and escape by buckling down and trying harder we're gonna spin that hamster wheel even faster and actually try and make it go somewhere But it doesn't. In the end, it disappoints. And so maybe instead we just give up. We get philosophical and we buy into what's called nihilism, the belief that nothing truly matters. And we resign ourselves to a meaningless existence. But that's not much fun. So most of us instead decide to party. Uh, I can't remember if it was Dave Matthews band or Isaiah that said, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, that's the motto of the hedonist live for pleasure or the recent beer commercial where, you know, the astronomer sees this meteorite coming and the world's going to end. So they all just start partying. If nothing matters, if it's all going to burn anyway, let's at least roast some marshmallows and have some s'mores on the way out. But is that all? Is that the, Are those the only possible responses to the dissatisfaction that we find in life under the sun? Is there any hope in this book? The short answer, yes. Because there is God. In fact, it's arguable that no other book in Scripture invites us to know and enjoy God more deeply and with greater satisfaction than Ecclesiastes. But as as pastor, now college president Phil Riken says, in order to know and enjoy God properly, we first have to see the emptiness of life without him becoming Thoroughly disillusioned with everything the world has to offer, the God portrayed in this book is not a God who has momentarily slipped off of his throne, and consequently, life on Earth is spun out of control, nor is he sitting in heaven wringing his hands, trying to figure out what he's going to do to, to fix things. This God is sovereign. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This God is powerful. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. This God is good. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And this God cares about everything that happens and everything that we do. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. When we look at this world through our eyes, our experience, what we can see and evaluate from the ground, it does look pretty meaningless and, and like nothing matters. But when we see the world through God's eyes, from above the sun, if you will, we see that in fact everything matters. The last verse of the book, for God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And only then when we view life from above the sun, from God's perspective, will we have the wisdom necessary for living out our days in reverence before God and with joy in what he's given us to do, even if what we do doesn't end up lasting because the God of this universe is not only sovereign over the confusion and the vanity of life, but he sent his eternal son into this world to take that vanity on himself. All the corruption, all the sin, all the decay and meaninglessness of life on himself on the cross. Our work may not add anything new. Jesus did a completely new work on the cross, the work of redemption. Our work won't be remembered. Jesus' work is remembered because it changed the course of human history. And get this, not only is Jesus' work remembered, but He remembers us. He sees us. By his blood, every evil deed that we've done is cleansed and forgiven for those who personally place their faith in him. By his spirit, none of our service to him is wasted. All the work we do in this world that is so quickly forgotten or falls apart, none of it's wasted if it's done for him. As to the Lord, when when folding socks is done in love for someone and with a thankful heart to the God who's given us today, that's an act of service to him. That's an act of worship. When paying bills or teaching kids or selling software or fixing cars is done in love for another, With a holiness that reflects God's character and with thankfulness to him, it's an act of worship. It's enjoying the work of the hands that God has given us to do. It will be remembered by God. When we bear witness to how beautiful and worthy God is, not just with our works, but with our words as we point others to Christ... Our work is not in vain. God will remember it. It is not wasted. Because the God we serve not only gave his son to rescue and cleanse us from our evil works, but he raised Jesus from the dead to bring new life, new hope, new meaning and significance, a new creation that overtakes the decaying and futile world we live in. Listen to what Paul says about our service to God in 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you catch that? It's not in vain. There is meaning, there is significance, everything does matter because there is God. Now whether you know this God personally, or whether you're simply exploring the things of faith, I invite you to come along with us on this journey with Ecclesiastes. Down into the dark, mysterious valley, And take a hard, honest look at reality. The vapor of life and all of the dreams that disappoint. And then come up with us on the other side and see Jesus. See the beauty and the significance and the lasting gain of knowing him. And living life in joyful and reverent submission to him. Our only hope for lasting gain in a fleeting and fruitless world is God himself. Let's pray. Lord, you know the longings and the secret sadness of every heart. You know what we're hoping in, whether it's you or something else. You know the fears that we live with of seeing our dreams fall apart, of seeing harm come to people we love, of seeing disaster come to our plans. And you know that some are living in those disasters and those nightmares. Lord, speak by your spirit your word into our hearts and let us see Jesus in the midst of this vapor. And as we go through this book, give us joy. Give us a surprising satisfaction in Christ. A satisfaction, a joy again that that travels above our circumstances because we know with Jesus, nothing is in vain. Be glorified among us. Amen.